Hi, it's Brendan here. Before we kick off with this episode of The Brendan O'Neill Show, I just want to say a huge thank you to everyone who has donated to Spiked. Spiked is free. We have no paywall. Our articles are free. Our podcasts are free. Our videos are free. And we want to keep it that way so that our ideas can reach as wide an audience as possible. And it's only thanks to those of you who donate that we are able to do this, that we are able to have a packed website that is accessible to everyone. If you haven't yet donated and you'd like to, please consider doing so today. One-off donations are great and always hugely appreciated, but even better are regular monthly donations. Giving as little as £5 a month can really make a huge difference and help Spite carry on doing what we're doing. So if you'd like to donate, go to www.spiked-online.com and hit the big red donate button. Right, on with the show. By preserving the and conserving the legacy of the past, I actually create the foundation for people like you and others to be able to have the confidence and the independence to be open-minded and to experiment and to take freedom really seriously and to be genuinely free and to cultivate and cherish that freedom. You really do require the conservation of those precious assets that we've gained through our historical experience. Hello and welcome to The Brendan O'Neill Show with me, Brendan O'Neill. This is a podcast in which an esteemed guest joins me to talk about the big ideas, the bad ideas, the problems and the controversies of life in the early 21st century. In this episode, I am delighted to be joined by Frank Ferradi. Frank will be familiar to Spiked readers. He is a regular contributor of articles and essays to Spiked. He is a sociologist and prolific author. He was professor of sociology at the University of Kent, during which time he became widely known for his extensive work on the sociology of fear. He has written numerous books, including How Fear Works, Therapy Culture, Paranoid Parenting, and what's happened to the university. In this discussion, I talk to Frank about his latest excellent book, Why Borders Matter, Why Humanity Must Relearn the Art of Drawing Boundaries. So Frank, I want to start off by asking you about your new book and the motivation for writing it. Obviously, we live in a world in which it has become fashionable to be against borders. You know, you see protesters on the streets with banners saying borders equals death. Everyone wants to be post-borders. It's it's trendy to be without borders, doctors without borders, reporters without borders. So there is a general trend amongst the opinion-forming set and a certain wing in the culture war that says borders are a terrible thing, a bad thing, a, a wicked imposition. Clearly, your motivation was to counter that narrative. What what made you want to do that? Well, I think I began to realize that the call for open borders or the critique of different kinds of boundaries, such as that between an adult and a child or a man and a woman, was not motivated by some kind of a fantastically interesting ideal. It was really motivated by the fact that increasingly in the world that we live in, any form of distinction is seen as potentially harmful. And one of the things we find is that people say that borders are not only bad because they keep people out, they're also immoral, they're discriminatory. And similarly, any kind of distinction, uh, for example, between right and wrong or evaluating different forms of art as being good or bad, somehow discriminates against the lower ones. And it's this uh, failure to judge or the fear of judging that I felt was really a, a foundational element in the new kind of culture that we're moving into where identity becomes everything and where any kind of moral imagination that goes beyond the individual identity is immediately seen as a kind of uh, sickness or illness. That's what motivated me to begin to look into the subject. So I want to come back to that issue of distinction and the way in which even in cultural areas, borders are seen as a problematic thing. But just to uh, on the question of 
open borders and issues to do with territory and nationhood. I want to focus on that for a little bit. One of the things that strikes me about this discussion is the way in which borders, they're always judged in relation to what they do to people outside of the borders. So they're always seen as a barrier, a wall, a fence. They're always seen as something which communicates a message to those outside. They, you know, they say, stay away. You're not welcome. Don't come here. Now that's an important part of a border. An important part of the border, of course, is what it says to those outside of the borders. But it, very little attention is paid, I think, to one of the incredibly important things about national borders in particular, which is what they say to people within them and the more positive message that can be conveyed by a border to those who live within a border. So do, do you think one of the important things in relation to territorial borders is what they communicate to the people who live within them? Yes, I think what borders do is they bound people to a specific space. It's got a, an important moral significance because people exist in communities within fairly clearly defined spaces. People aren't just members of an abstract global entity. They see themselves as coming from Yorkshire. They, they see themselves from coming from a particular town. And that kind of influences who they are and, and the meaning they, they attach to life. And one of the important things about borders is that it's through establishing very clear borders that you can even have a, an idea of what is a public sphere, you know, what is the public domain within which social, cultural and political life occurs. And historically, the Greeks, already back in ancient times, almost to a person defined the walls that surrounded a city-state as being synonymous with the law. Laws exist for those people that exist within a given territory. And the idea of democracy only makes sense in relation to a bounded people, a bounded demos, where citizens are able to take responsibility for other people who inhabit the same kind of space. And without borders, democracy simply ceases to exist hmm. and public life turns into a reality TV show. On that theme, uh, I wanted to ask you about what you think the current trend, the cult of anti-borders, what it does to the question of citizenship, because it strikes me that we hear lots of, you know, that a lot of value is still attached to the word citizenship. So we'll often hear people talking about global citizenship or international citizenship, or we are new kinds of citizens connected across the world by huge problems such as climate change and so on. But it strikes me that all of that sounds pretty phony. And if you erode borders, or even if you push a post-borders ideology, which lots of sections of the elite have been doing, you really call into question the very possibility of citizenship, never mind the substance of citizenship. Well, I was really surprised to discover in the course of doing my research that increasingly citizenship is criticized and framed in a negative light. I never imagined that people would question citizenship because it's such a foundation of our modern political life. But nevertheless, citizenship is criticized on the same grounds as all other borders are criticized. People say that it's fundamentally wrong to make a distinction between a citizen and a non-citizen. Because if you make a distinction between the two, then you're discriminating against the non-citizens, which of course you are, because that's precisely the whole point of being a citizen. You're basically saying, that uh, my citizenship means something to me because I'm not like those people who are not citizens. As a citizen, you have certain responsibilities and uh, you have certain privileges that other people don't have. And if you basically erode the distinction, then what you also destroy is the responsibility that citizens have for the democratic future of their own society. One of the ways in which this gets posed, this kind of outlook is posed increasingly in terms of openness. And one of the things we've heard over the past three or four years in particular is that the new divide in the West is between people who are open and people who are closed. And this is pushed by magazines like The Economist and leading political figures. And I wanted to ask you a bit about openness, because openness is a nice word. Being open is a pretty good thing. Open-minded, open to new experiences, opening your heart to, to other people, all of those things are generally considered good and can be very good. But it, I think there's something problematic with the way in which openness is currently understood. And it seems to me to 
in some cases be the opposite of what we would traditionally have considered to be an open-minded, open attitude. Yeah, I mean, I think what has happened is that openness is now framed as a value in and of itself. So the more open you are, the better person you are. And, and uh, you know, the more unrestrained you are about your openness, the more valued you are. And, and ultimately, that kind of fetishization of openness leads to a situation where our culture becomes one big reality television show, where increasingly pornography is seen as being valued because we're so open about our bodies. We're so open about talking about sex. We're so open about talking about intimacy that literally anything to do with your own private self, anything to do with your own inner thoughts needs to be almost kind of played out, performed within a public space. And this invitation to be open and, and, and that kind of openness not only undermines the persona of, a, of an autonomous human being who's got their own thoughts, which they reflect upon. It also destroys the private sphere and the private life that we have, because increasingly we are told that anybody who hides behind their private sphere, who wants to maintain a distinction between what they do at home and what they do in public, are somehow suspect that you know a, a really nice, genuine, tolerant person would never simply close their doors to the rest of the world, that there's something inherently wrong with that. And any politician who refuses to spill out to the world their problems, their problems with their sex life, their mental health issues, any, any politician who basically says, I'm here to talk about my policies rather than about my inner thoughts is immediately dismissed as somehow this kind of unreliable, untrustworthy individual. And what about the people who, on the other side of that, equation, the people who are judged to be closed or who are defined as closed by the people who who write these kinds of political narratives, that would include Brexit voters, that would probably include a lot of, a lot of Trump voters, especially Trump voters who support the building of the wall against Mexico, for example. And it would include lots of voters in Europe who, who are voting for the wrong political parties or who are Eurosceptic. They get branded as being part of the closed group. That seems to me to be a pretty clear attempt at delegitimizing the views that these people actually hold, which are actually often a strong attachment to a sense of nationhood or community. And how would you counter the accusation that people interested in those kinds of things, particularly in something like Brexit, are closed and want to remove themselves from the world as we've known it? Well, it seems to me that throughout history, human beings cultivated certain attachment and they would cultivate attachment to their family, to their loved ones, to their neighbors and to their communities. And although as we evolve as, 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 a, as a human species, we tend to become much more able to understand other kinds of people with different kinds of attachment. Nevertheless, we make these kinds of distinctions for the very simple reasons that we as a specific particular group of people are able to develop our independence in relation to the world that we've created and the world that we live in, rather than to the abstract needs and the abstract influences that prevail globally. And in many respects, you could argue that the people who claim to be very cosmopolitan, who have no attachment, they go from conference to conference, they fly you know, from one city to the, to the other, rather than being open, are simply confusing escapism with openness. They're really escaping commitment and responsibility, and they're flattering themselves by calling that openness. I wanted to ask you about one of the great confusions of our time, I think. I mean, the terms left and right don't particularly mean a great deal anymore, certainly not what they meant over the past 200 years. But one of the confusions right now is that left-wing people would consider themselves, largely speaking, to be part of the openness crowd. And many of them would look upon others who voted in the wrong way as being part of the closed crowd, which I think is a bit of a strange phenomenon. And even someone like Bernie Sanders has made this point. Bernie Sanders has not unreasonably made the point that traditionally the people who were completely in favour of openness with no regard for the importance of borders or of national democracy tended to be sections of the capitalist class who disdained any barrier to free trade the movement of labor and so on. So do you recognize that? And, and how do you think that shift has come about where 
openness with no regard for the importance of national democracy seems to have gone from being a rather top-down imposition phenomenon to being something that is cleaved to by sections of the left and people who would call themselves liberals. I think the uh, important development that has occurred in the last 20, 25 years is that a section of, of society has made the decision to detach themselves from their past. They detach themselves not only from their past and the values and the legacy of the past, but they feel that somehow they need to detach themselves from the nation they were born into, the community where they grew up, and ultimately even from their family. And what they argue is that rather than in some shape or form bearing this burden and responsibility of carrying on with the traditions of the past, they argue we are so enlightened, we are so open that we're going to create and fabricate our own identity. And one of the important things about identity and identity politics and the way that it's emerged is that it flatters itself in that, that it's a product of my own individual decision. You know, I decide to be transgender. I decide that I, I'm embracing this sexuality. I decide to be, you know, you have white people making a decision to be black people. And you have, you, have, you even have people who are fully abled making a decision to adopt the identity of being disabled. And when you have this kind of promiscuous escapism from, from your own past, then, then under those circumstances, openness does become culturally uh, a very new kind of phenomenon which converges with the openness of rich people in the capitalist class who have got no commitment. They feel just as much at home in Paris as they do in Kansas City, you know, because they have a world that is completely abstracted from the world that the rest of us live in. I, I really agree with that. Let's talk a little bit about something that you write very well about in the book, which is the, the paradox of the current borders discussion. Because, and I think this is a, it's actually a, a re incredibly important point, because on the one hand, we have this post-borders, no-borders ideology, which is incredibly fashionable. But uh, some of the people who push that are are in favour of imposing their own borders as and when it becomes appropriate for them. So you give the example of, you know, trendy Americans who would be absolutely repulsed by the idea of a physical border between America and Mexico. But these are often the very same people who will create safe spaces on campus, which erect pretty clear borders against anyone who holds a different point of view or has a different worldview. I also often think of the European Union as a kind of, in some ways, a physical manifestation of this paradox, because the European Union, in terms of its internal mechanisms, is based on the idea, you know, borders are a pain in the neck and we want free movement of people and capital. But then if you look at fortress Europe and the way in which it protects its project from any problematic immigration from Africa or competition from China. So there too, there is a kind of very clear physical paradox. And I wonder, how do you untangle these things? Does it simply indicate that the people striking a pose against borders aren't necessarily against borders? Or does it point to a deeper, profound contradiction in this political outlook? Well, I think that at the end of the day, we, we all need borders. And even the most hostile person to national borders, at the end of the day, realizes that they need somehow to have a, a space which they can call their own. And in, in increasingly, the space that they uh, aspire to is a very kind of personalized one. But I think what is very interesting is that the same people that argue wholeheartedly about national borders being uh, violent and discriminatory and horrible to people, and and uh, we must get rid of all the police that are are policing these national borders. The, the same people who say that are extremely committed to the policing of culture. Mm -hmm. So you have this new development of what's called cultural appropriation, where different groups are patrolling the distinctions between cultures, and you have uh, recently in this last few days a number of white chefs being criticised for cooking food that isn't American food, but is Asian or comes from some another part of the world. You have Indian yoga teachers insisting that, you know, yoga classes can only be taught by Asians because it's part of their culture. So they're very carefully policing culture in all kinds of different ways. And if you happen to be a white university student 
who wears a sombrero hat at a campus ball, you're criticized for appropriating Mexican culture. So, you know, boundaries are really police, but these are very different boundaries. These are identity-related boundaries. And to me, the most extreme example of this, uh, of the way in which borders have become personalized and identity-based, is the obsession we have today with personal borders, with kind of defending your personal space. And there are, if you go on Amazon, you'll find there are dozens and dozens and dozens of books, self-help books, that tell you how to protect your personal space against intrusion. And the very fact that we're concerned about personal space, but indifferent to the space of our nation, indicates the kind of problem that we have today. How would you see those two things as being related? I mean, I I, I think it's it could be straightforwardly argued that there is a close relationship between those two things, because I think in relation to the contemporary disdain for national borders, it's often driven by uh, a self-conscious detachment from the people who live within those borders and a disregard for their points of view, their ways of life, their cultural values, and for the idea that they should have a proper democratic say in how a nation is run. So it's, it's often driven by a sense of conscious distancing from your fellow citizens, particularly those who are lower down the status ladder than yourself. So I guess that could be seen as being related to the growth in interest in protection of one's personal space, because both seem to spring from an orientation away from your fellow citizen into a sphere that is either incredibly well protected from those people or simply exists on a different plane in an, in an abstracted global world. So to what extent do you think there is a conscious aspect to the borders discussion where it is about alienating yourself and maybe a few members of your identity group from the masses, from the populace, from the, from the, the people within the nation? I think there is that on the one hand, but there's also much more semi-conscious, almost a, a kind of powerful inner drive of socially distancing yourself from other people. And I think it's interesting that very often the same people who love cultivating their new, new founded identity are also the ones that have been most comfortable with social distancing during the COVID-19 lockdown. And for them, you know, that kind of social distancing of being estranged and physically distant from other people didn't come as a, as a big problem. And they couldn't understand why people like me wanted to get out of lockdown as fast as possible. I wanted to get out into, into the real world. And it's interesting that when you look at the whole discussion around safe spaces, personal spaces, it is very much influenced by a, a, a kind of a fear of other people. It's a, it's a kind of insecure uh, kind of sensibility that often expresses itself in very aggressive forms when, it, when, it, when identity becomes weaponized and politicized. But nevertheless, it is a very kind of uh, anti-human kind of sensibility where you really don't trust other people and you almost kind of seek refuge in your own identity. That becomes you. That's a statement about who you are. And other people and their lives are a matter of, of, of indifference to you. You don't particularly care about them. Following on from that, I wanted to ask you just pointedly about the issue of immigration, because the issue of immigration, I think, is a difficult one for many people at the moment, because on the one hand, there are those of us, including some of us at Spite, who are very interested in promoting a fairly generous approach to immigration, a fairly liberal attitude towards immigration. And it, that's something we definitely think should be in the mix in the democratic discussion and something we might be interested in convincing people to get behind. But on the other hand, there seems to be possibly a semi-conscious promotion of immigration from the top down, which is designed in large part to push forward some of the problematic trends you're talking about. So immigration, you know, not particularly consciously, but it becomes weaponized as a way of diluting borders, diluting national cultures. And you often hear, for example, the immigrant worth ethic being valued higher than lazy natives. There may well be a, a, an element of truth in the immigrant work ethic. I have no doubt about that. But the way in which the value of immigration is posited as, as being almost superior to the values of the nation in which the immigrants are moving. So there does seem to be 
a bit of a conflictual situation for those of us who might be interested in arguing for an open approach to immigration when it is used, particularly by the European Union and others, as a means of weakening borders and diluting national integrity? Yeah, this is a very difficult question because, as you suggest, one would like to be as generous as possible in relation to allowing people free movement. And, you know, I myself, I come from an immigrant family. We kind of migrated to Canada from East Europe. So I'm quite sympathetic to people's desire to to migrate. But there's a difference between immigration and the way in which immigration has been recast into a, a very new kind of political weapon. And if you look at the discourse that is used in America and in, uh, and in England, for example, by advocates of open borders, they see immigration as a positive development because it kind of dilutes the homogeneity of the national community. And from their standpoint, homogeneity is seen as bad and diversity is seen as being good in and of itself. And therefore, the more you can create a, a diverse society, the more you undermine homogeneity, the better it is, because that undermines the whole national sensibility that exists within a nation state. And it seems to me that there's a problem with that. And the problem is not immigration, but it's the ideology of multiculturalism, which invites people to refuse to assimilate and reconstitute a, a new homogeneous system, but instead invites them to create parallel societies. It, it kind of invites them to ignore the cultures and the sensibilities of the society that they've kind of moved into. And when you do do that, then what you end up doing is actually undermining that kind of sense of nationhood and you weaken society from within. And in, in, and that has, I think, potentially very damaging consequences, including the creation of conflict. One of the ironies I, I'm always struck by in relation to this discussion is that the very people who disdain borders and then uphold the ideology of multiculturalism, one of the unwitting consequences of what they say and do is the creation of new kinds of borders within a nation. So borders between local towns, between one ethnic bubble and another ethnic bubble, and a certain amount of tension between communities who see themselves as being opposites. And in some instances in Europe, there are even pretty much no-go zones where you know there's certain places you can't go because of the values that have been allowed to take hold there. And in relation to that, I wanted to ask you about specifically about assimilation, because if you say the word assimilation these days, you're pretty much seen as a fascist almost. It's seen as a as a terrible imposition to put on anyone. Whereas it strikes me as being something that is potentially incredibly beneficial, firstly for society itself, because you're assimilating more people into the national project, into a sense of being part of the nation, part of the workforce and so on, but also beneficial for immigrants and new arrivals who are invited to become part of something new and are invited to learn the language that everyone else speaks, adopt the values that others consider to be important. Whereas I think the the current rage against assimilation, which I think springs from the kind of disdain for borders and nationhood, strikes me as being incredibly destructive for all sides. Yes, I mean, the question of assimilation ultimately is about the question of what is it that binds us together? You know, what is it that makes us members of the same community? And that's a very difficult question to answer if we discourage people from speaking the same language, mm. adopting similar habits, having a common education. Because when you do do that, then you do create a process of cultural unraveling. And I know this myself because I remember the very first time I went to the United States, it was the case that almost anywhere you went to, people talked about the American way of life. And when people said the American way of life, they didn't need to explain what that meant. There was a certain tacit assumption that everybody knew what it was really all about. Now, today, what you've got is a situation where if I talk about the American way of life, some people will kind of agree with me and bow in a sense. Others will regard that expression as an incitement to an argument because in the, from their point of view, the American way of life 
is the last way of life they want to see in their own country. So what you then have is a situation where, you know, instead of encouraging people to create a common web of meaning through forging bonds that bind them together, what you're doing is you're, you're kind of basically encouraging people to go in their own way and creating a very divisive dynamic, which is very, very evident when you go to North America or you go to France. You know, even in Britain, we have a, an unfortunate tendency to go in a, in a different direction and create parallel worlds. On the question of a sense of nationhood, a sense of community, the thing within borders being an important space for democratic reasons and reasons related to, to citizenship, on that in particular, I wanted to ask you about how you would see the distinction between being in favour of nationhood and national democracy and being a nationalist. Because one of the current terms of abuse, there are many, you know, if you're a populist, you're a bad person. If you're a nationalist, you're a bad person. And I wonder how you would distinguish those things. So for example, if you look at the vote for Brexit, now I and many others see the vote for Brexit as an, an attempt by ordinary people to push back some of the trends that you've been talking about and others have been talking about, particularly in relation to the dilution of national borders and the undermining of national democracy. And and most of the opinion polls show that people voted Brexit predominantly for two reasons. Firstly, because they want laws that we have to live by to be made in the UK. And secondly, because they want a greater democratic say over the issue of immigration. So both of those touch incredibly intimately on the sense of nationhood. But of course, what happens is that they're all referred to as nationalists. And then we have the spectre of the 1930s and the more psychotic episodes in human history. So how do you feel about the term nationalist? If you don't like it very much, how would you distinguish what you're saying now from the accusation of being a nationalist? We have a lot of problems with nationalism and the nation because in the last 50 or 60 years, there's been a systematic campaign to delegitimate the sense of nationhood so that even the very basic pride that you have in your national football team or your national sport team is seen as a, as a kind of form of bad taste on your part. And we're discouraged to take our nationhood too seriously on the grounds that, you know, if I take pride in being English or being French, that is seen as, as a negative character trait, something that inherently implies that because I have, I take pride in, in being British, it, it immediately implies that that means that I must hate Germans or I must hate French, or at least I'm disposed towards looking down on other people. Whereas in fact, you know, uh, the sense of nationhood can be understood very simply as, you know, I define myself as, as Frank Ferreira partially in relation to you as Brendan O'Neill. I, you know, I know that I'm who I am partially because I know I'm not you. <laughs> I mean, that's how we develop our identities in the first instance. And we do that at an individual level. We do that at a family community level. And it seems to me that there's a real importance about a nation. And the importance about a nation is that it provides the foundation for us being part of a people. And in a sense, you know, whether we like it or not, even though all of us are human beings on this globe, we are also at the same time different kinds of people. And we are the people who are committed and, and are linked to a particular space. We are a people that, that are organically linked to the generations that preceded us and to the generation before that. And it's those organically created uh, sort of relationships, what we call pre-political relationships of family and, and generational interaction that gives us a, a certain security and a, a certain understanding, a certain meaning about the way we make our world. And, you know, you might decide when you're older to become part of another people. You might decide, well, you know, you grew up in Britain and it was nice, but now you want to move to Australia. And when you move to Australia, you you take part in being part of the Australian community. But in both cases, you know, you are, you partake of a nation. Now, whether you then politicize being British and you weaponize Britishness and you become 
you know, sort of, uh, you develop a, a, an extreme identity. That's a choice that you have, but that doesn't follow organically from having a sense of nationhood. You can even have a, you know, being a nationalist doesn't necessarily mean that you turn that into an ideology. Being a nationalist can simply mean that you see your own culture and your own society as a prism through which you interpret your everyday experience. And it's a prism that allows you and gives you insights about the world. So I do think we need to take a reality check and make a very clear distinction between nationhood and the sense of nationalism on the one hand, and when nationalism becomes politicized and turned into a weapon, when it becomes simply another form of identity politics, pretty much the way that LBGTQ people weaponize their identity. And of course, at that point, it becomes a very regressive, destructive force. Okay, I want to move on to the question of the importance of borders in relation to how they tell us what we are not. So I started off by asking you about the importance of borders for those who live within them, sense of community, a positive sense that you're in this sphere for a particular reason, with particular responsibilities, with particular privileges. But of course, the flip side to this is obviously wrong to see borders merely as a barrier to outsiders, but borders do also play an important role in distinguishing one thing from another. And so you mentioned earlier the contemporary fear of distinction. And uh, one of the things that I think is incredibly important about your book is that it's not just about national borders and nationhood and democracy. It's also about the corrosion of borders and divides in the cultural sphere, in the personal sphere, in the political sphere. So I want to ask you about a few of those. So one, I mean, there are so many arenas now in which any attempt to distinguish between one thing and another is completely being eroded. I think one of the most important is in relation to sex and gender. And you write about the transgender phenomenon, where I think the most striking thing, I think, about the contemporary transgender phenomenon is that it seems to be eroding what in some ways is one of the most important borders in human society, which is the that between male and female, which does not mean that one is more equal than another, but certainly recognises that there is a difference between those two things. Traditionally, they've played different roles. They often relate to children differently or children relate to them differently. I wonder, to what extent do you understand transgenderism as an organic movement of a new identity set, a group of people who have their particular view of themselves and want to pursue their identity? And to what extent do you see it as society itself signaling that even that most basic distinction between male and female is no longer acceptable in a society like ours? Well, I think there are two sides to it. One of the sides that's quite important is that the term trans recurs with great frequency in contemporary culture, and it's highly valued because trans uh, simply signifies the fact that you're going beyond any any kind of distinction, beyond the conventional boundaries that used to exist. So, you know, a transnational citizen is a citizen of no specific place. A transnational citizen can identify in any old way. It becomes an entirely arbitrary accomplishment, unconnected and unrooted in anything specific. And if you go on Google and you look at the different ways that trans is used this way, you'll find that its main purpose is to encourage something that's very popular in universities, which is transgression. Now, transgression is a very interesting concept because there was a time when to transgress was seen as a very serious sort of sin or as a very serious uh, crime against a particular law. And in the old days, you know, some people would, would kind of get themselves involved in transgression so you read some like the philosopher Nietzsche who transgressed, you know, but they knew that when they transgressed, they were going to pay a very high price for breaking the taboos or the rules of that society. Now today, when transgression is welcomed, when it's invited, you don't pay a price for, for transgressing. And in fact, if you look at all the ads uh, for cars, for consumer products, for cosmetics, that encourage people to transgress, you can see that it's not culturally celebrated. So that's 
the first thing about trans as an all-purpose phenomenon that resonates with contemporary borderless culture. The second element is the one you relate to specifically, is transgenderism. And I think that there it is very important because it shows you something really crucially important. Transgenderism isn't about an individual making a choice about who they are, which I think most of us are happy with. You can be, you know, whoever you want to be, as far as I'm concerned. If you're a man and you want you, you want to call yourself Napoleon, or if you're a man and you want to call yourself a woman or a donkey, that's that's perfectly okay with me because we are living in a democratic society. But when you then go a step further and argue that even though I was born as a man and I was born with a male reproductive organ, so I've got a penis, I'm actually, you know, if I want to be, I'm a woman. And not only can I call myself a woman, but I'm no less a woman than somebody who whose who's biological sex is a woman who was born with female reproductive organs, then you do have not only a, a lot of confusion, but what you also create is a, is a dynamic where, in a sense, uh, our identities become entirely arbitrary and where the basic elementary uh, sort of roles that exist within society, which are always foundational for a human community, becomes corroded. And where you, know, you end up in a situation where you know, sort of, yeah, parents who think they are very progressive and very enlightened, they boast about the fact that when ch- their child is born, they're not going to lay on them the burden of giving them a gender. The child can decide that for themselves. That's irresponsibility. And that kind of transgender culture, which is now emerging, becoming stronger and stronger, is really a very irresponsible and ultimately immoral way of making our way in the world. In relation to that, one of the other things you you talk about is another important border, traditionally speaking, was the border between public life and private life. And thinking about the transgender issue and a few other kind of contemporary campaigns too, it strikes me that one of the problematic phrases is the personal is political. Now, of course, that phrase is not single-handedly responsible for all the sorts of corrosions we're talking about, but it does strike me that the use of that phrase and the institutionalization of it in some senses really represents one of the most fundamental breakdowns of borders, which have been recognized as important by thinkers throughout history, the border between who you are as a private person, how you replenish yourself morally in a private sphere with your intimate relations with others, hidden away from the vagaries of capitalist society and the pressures of political society, a sphere in which you can imagine yourself and remake yourself and fortify yourself for public engagement. When that breaks down, I think both public life and private life suffer. Private life becomes more interfered with and public life, as you suggested earlier on, becomes more about you know, what is a politician feeling rather than what is a politician proposing to do about society? So the question I wanted to ask in relation to this is how much of this stuff that we are currently talking about, how much of it do you think springs from that attitude of the personal is political? And more broadly than that, the institutionalization of some of the countercultural stuff that came out of the 1960s and 70s, where that, that stuff now seems to be pretty mainstream in society. Well, the development of the personalist political as an idea emerges with the uh, attempt to destroy conventional boundaries and to basically call into question all the signposts, all the symbolic boundaries that used to give meaning to life. That's what begins to occur in the 60s. And it's at that point, for example, when adulthood is regarded as a big drag when people say that uh, the only stage of life that is worth celebrating is that of youth, and the only culture that really means anything is youth culture. So that's the kind of the beginning of a process where there's a systematic attempt to open up all the all these borders and boundaries and to call into question what's going on. And, you know, that particularly pertains to the relationship between what you do in public and what you do in private. Because human civilization evolved, particularly in the modern time, 
by making that distinction between the public and the private sphere, it's interesting to note that it was the ancient Greeks who, first of all, boasted about the fact that they are very much concerned with what goes on in public, but they don't particularly care what you do at home in your own private sphere. That that is your business, and you can there you can you can be your own king and, and make your own way and make decisions about how you want to be seen and how you perceive yourself. So those were seen as quite important for us to develop and evolve as a civilized uh, society. Now today, because the boundary has been called into question, because that's what the personal and political does, what, what you say in effect is that both the public sphere and the private sphere loses their meaning. And we can see that happening by the simple fact that so much of what used to take place only in the private sphere is now brought out into the public sphere. I think everything to do from from talking about your emotional problems, everything to do with your temper, everything to do with your sexual attitudes, your hopes and aspirations, they're kind of brought out in the public. And being able to express in public your most intimate private feelings is today seen as the high point of culture. So whenever you watch a reality TV program and they basically kind of bring you up and interview you and they say, Brendan, you know, how does it feel to have been chosen, you know, to kind of move on to the next stage? Brendan will answer by saying, you know, sort of, uh, you know, it means everything to me. And it's, and it's that emotional moment where you, where you say, I'm totally gutted. Hmm. And you kind of really express those powerful emotions. That's what that reality TV program was waiting for. That, that's what it's all about. When you reveal everything, or at least you kind of perform to reveal everything. That's the key moment of which kind of culture is really all about. And if you're like me, who's a bit stoical, and I got a stiff upper lip even now, and I say, look, actually, I'm not here to tell you how I feel. You know, I, I, I can tell my wife how I feel, but I'm here to tell you what I think. That will be seen as a, as a, as a symptom of moral inferiority. So that kind of distinction, it goes completely. And in the public, what we do is we perform. And unfortunately, in the private sphere, we're left with very little. Yeah. We're left with very little that we can genuinely call our own anymore. Absolutely. And in fact, if you refuse to do that in public, you are pathologized. It's as you say in your book, and you've said it in earlier books too, there's presumed to be something wrong with you. You're in denial, you're hiding something, you're suppressing something. And all these kind of pseudo psychological terms are invented to describe that unwillingness to take that role. But it, it strikes me, which I think brings home the importance of borders or the importance of distinction, which is uh, this area, I think in particular, touches upon that. Because if you do become incredibly performative in relation to your inner feelings, then you become an increasingly shallow person. You, you know, you become the hollow man because everyone knows that you can't really be as honest in front of an audience as you would be in front of someone who you love dearly. And so everything takes on this very performative role. And I, I wonder if people recognize how destructive it is to hollow out the private sphere to the extent that it has been over the past few years. I think some people do. A lot of people, unfortunately, uh, are too much caught up in this kind of cultural moment. And occasionally what happens is that they realize that something goes wrong. But then what they do is that instead of trying to recreate a private sphere where they can take their social mask off and where they could be at one with their intimate partners, what you have, and this is particularly uh, manifest in the United States, but it's much wider than that, is an obsession with personal space. And what you're trying to do is to create these boundaries around yourself where you kind of, in places of work or in universities and elsewhere, you try to create this kind of metaphorical space, this distance between you and others. And you now have a whole industry of self-help books and psychologists that help you to learn how to cultivate your own boundaries. And it becomes this almost artificial way of saying to somebody else, you know, that's my space. You know, don't come too close to me. And, and instead of creating a, a genuine sort of sphere of privacy, which used to exist beforehand, you're forced to fall back upon this artificial construct of a personal space. And that becomes your little empire, your kind of psychological, you know, sort of kingdom where you try to somehow 
gain a bit of control over your life. Just fast forwarding to the extreme present, one of the border issues I've been thinking about and struggling with over the past few weeks is in relation to the border between or the distinction between the past and the present. So history has become, in some people's view, this omnipresent oppressive force. We've seen people tearing down statues and behaving quite hysterically in relation to statues, stamping on them, burning them, throwing them in rivers on the basis that history is this huge monstrous force which determines how we feel, how we think of ourselves. It makes black people feel bad. It makes them feel like victims. It still enriches white people with privilege, regardless of your station in life in, in contemporary society. There's this incredibly warped discussion of history and the barrier between the past and the present has completely and utterly broken down. You know, the old saying, the past is a foreign country, they did things differently there, no longer seems to hold much water because the past is constantly washing over us and, and we seem increasingly obsessed with it. On the other hand, though, it is, of course, true that history, not as a sentient force, but the the acts of history and the achievements of history certainly shape and influence the society we live in. So how would you distinguish between this, I think, rather aggressive view of history as this thing that is like a tsunami in everyday life and the importance of appreciating the achievements of history as we move forward? Well, I think there's a difference between, as you say, appreciating history and learning the lessons of the past and taking its legacy forward, albeit in a critical way, and becoming better human beings by drawing out the, the lessons that the past provides us. There's a difference between that and what we have today throughout the Western world, a case of reading history backwards. Because when you read history backwards, what you're doing is you're eroding the distinction, the boundary between the present and the past. And you are doing that partially because it's very easy to gain moral authority you know, a moral superiority by contrasting your behavior or your uh, supposed behavior against the people who were around 200, 500, 1,000 years ago. In other words, you, as a university professor, can look really aware and can look really moral superior when you compare yourself to uh, an owner of slaves in the United States in the early 18th or the late 18th century. And what you're doing is, it's a very, in a very kind of condescending way, you're basically saying, look, you know, sort of, we are so sensitive, we are so aware, these people were not. That's how you begin. But then, at a certain point, you forget the fact that these people have lived two, three hundred years before you did, and you begin to talk to them and have a dialogue with them in the way that you and I are having a di dialogue. And you're saying, you know, look, George Washington, you know, what was your position on gay rights, you know, <laughs> sort of? And if you, if, if George Washington didn't write a treatise, uh, arguing the virtues of, of gay rights and gay marriage, then somehow you're a morally inferior person. So you're projecting yourself backwards, but at the same time, you treat the figures of the past as if they are of today. And in the course of that, being extremely destructive, because what you're doing is you're, you know, the more you kind of beat away, and try to beat up people who lived two, three hundred years ago, the more you're creating this uh, distance, this space between the present and the past as it happens. And you do end up with the kind of uh, vision of the world, which is basically a year zero world where everything good, everything worthwhile begins in this year zero in the here and now that you've established. And it's very flattering. You know, you, you, you feel you're really, looking really, really good, but you destroy your whole continuity with the whole legacy of, of human experience. I've noticed that. In fact, one of the most striking things about the current moment is the the very casual way in which it completely demeans people who made incredible achievements in the past. So if you look at the the contemporary idea that, you know, black people's lives in the US in particular have not improved in 400 years and it's the same old American Republic, completely denigrates the work of Frederick Douglass, Harriet Tubman, Martin Luther King, this notion that 
nothing changed. And I think that's one of the problems with breaking down that barrier or misunderstanding history as this kind of terrible force rather than something as that people make in, in particular circumstances. One other paradox I wanted to raise with you, because you, you write about this in the book too, is in relation to the question of judgment. So one of the problems in contemporary society is an unwillingness to make judgments. So to such an extent that in relation to the borders between male and female, we now have a situation where, you know, a school teacher won't tell a a school boy that he's a boy rather than a girl. And instead, what often happens is all sorts of situations are created where that boy can pretend to be a girl. So, you know, an almost psychotic collapse of, of the willingness to make a judgment or to make a distinction. But at the same time, we live in an incredibly severe society in which people can be judged incredibly harshly if they fall outside the parameters of what is considered to be acceptable thinking, or if they say to that boy, you're a boy, and then all hell will rain down on those people. They might lose their jobs. They will be called every name under the sun. And it it might not be a particularly moral or intellectually deep form of judgment, but it does seem to be almost a religious denunciation. So how do you work out that paradox between living in a society that is running scared of moral judgment, but also one in which there are severe consequences for those who don't think in the right way? Well, when you remove judgment from the equation and you adopt this very unrestrained sensibility of limitlessness, where you don't recognize any limits, either physical or symbolic, then that becomes an invitation to behave in a very arbitrary and potentially totalitarian kind of a way. And that's why you will find that all these sensitive university professors who boast about their non-judgmentalism, you know, when they see a university student on campus wearing a MAGA hat, will immediately denounce them as being racist and homophobes and all the rest of that. And that, that is why if you have a different interpretation of the way that racism works than what the leaders of the Black Lives Matters movement say, you know, you don't allow there to be two theories of racism. There must be only one. You immediately denounce that as just another form of racism that you're kind of uh, putting forward. So you do have this uh, a level of hostility and hatred towards what you consider to be subversive views that's comparable to the, kind of, to the kind of totalitarian impulses that we saw in Nazi Germany or in Maoist China. Okay, final question. One of the things that is sometimes said about you is that, you know, you were a bit of a 60s radical, you were a bit of a, bit of a 70s radical, and now here you are, you know, talking about the importance of borders, the importance of distinction, you know, you're critical of the hyper-trendy transgender movement, and you're critical of other things that are conceived by some people, wrongly in my view, to be, you know, open, liberal, positive campaigns. And one of the things that is often said is that, you know, there are those who are 60s radicals who've become conservatives in the 21st century. How do you respond to that? Is is there a word that you use to describe your political outlook? How do you respond to the accusation that there is this trend among certain people to shift from radicalism to conservatism? I think that uh, what has happened since the 60s is that the world has changed. And because the world has changed, semi-intelligent normal human beings will presumably also change as well in, in relation to experience. And the problems that were thrown up 50 or 60 years ago, the problems confronting society then are a little bit different than the problems that we're confronted with in the here and now. I think today, when the legacy of humanity and and the achievements of Western culture are being called into question, we do have to take a step backwards and do whatever we can to conserve those values, to conserve that legacy, to protect it, cherish it, in order to be able to put it forward to the generations to come. And insofar as, I, as I'm doing that, I'm probably socially conservative. But insofar as I accomplish that task by preserving the and conserving the legacy of the past, I actually create the foundation for people like you and others to be able to have the confidence and the independence to be open-minded and to experiment 
and to take freedom really seriously and to be genuinely free and to cultivate and cherish that freedom, you really do require the conservation of those precious assets that we've gained through our historical experience. So the way that I would describe myself is that I've got both of these elements, maybe not in equal measure because it probably will change from year to year, but then that allows me to be sufficiently flexible and sufficiently open-minded to make up my mind along with others in response to the challenges that are thrown up against us by the problems that we face in society. Frank Friday, thank you very much. Thanks very much. Thank you for listening to The Brendan O'Neill Show. We'll be back with another guest and more discussion. Don't forget to subscribe. And in the meantime, keep reading Spiked at www.spiked-online.com.